G'day everyone, welcome back to the show. This is Conversations with Code 9 and I'm your host Tiffany Cook back yet again to speak to another wonderful guest and today's guest is Cameron Hardiman, 10 feet tall and not quite bulletproof. That is the topic of this conversation. That is the title of Cam's book. You should go grab a copy. It sounds like an epic read. But first, settle in because we're going to have a conversation about Cam's 34 years in policing and his experience with mental health and trauma along the way. It's a beautiful conversation as always. Thank you, Cam, for sharing and thanks everyone for tuning in. Hey, enjoy. Cameron Hardiman, welcome to Conversations with Code 9, my friend. Thank you. Ten foot tall and not quite bulletproof, they tell me. I am very excited to get to the crux of this conversation. Yeah, okay, yeah, it's a great title, isn't it? It's a great title. Well, it turns out the publisher is um, a bit of a, a fan of country and western. There's some country and western song that says it's ten feet tall and not quite bulletproof, so... It's there. Yeah. I'm going to have to go and hunt that out now. Yeah. Um, oh, some popular country and Western artists. So. Oh, there we go. I'll look it up. I'll look it up. When I share stories uh, advertising this episode, I'll make sure that's on my little soundtrack. Yeah, right. <laughs> so I, I'm assuming you've got some bullet holes. Yeah, I'll, yeah I've got a few. Um, I think we've all got a few. I take it, what well, sometimes I take a a bit of time to develop, but yeah, um, you know, if you catch them in time, you can sort of mend them and fix them. But sometimes, um, throw some metaphorical stitches in them. Yeah, we're a bit and stop the bleeding. Aren't we? We're a bit reluctant to do anything about it, and yeah, we kept rolling with it and uh, rolling with the punches, I suppose. Um, and eventually, it catches up. It's a really interesting. You know, it's actually it's a really timely conversation. I had a a cancellation at the boxing gym this morning and I messaged another one of my friends that I spar with and I said, do you want to catch up and do some sparring at 8 a.m.? Because I've got a spot. And he said, oh, I can't. He's a fiery. He said, I, I can't at the moment. I'm at a really bad accident. Mm. and But I could probably come in a bit later. And then I said, oh, I can't do it later. And he said, um, this is a really bad one. This is PTSD worthy. And, you know, I just, I love that in today's day and age, someone can say that because now he's on my mind and I'm like, you know, I mightn't have time to get the gloves on and spar with him, but I might get him to come in a bit later and hit the pads with me and just check in. I was like, you know, if you want to talk about this later and you yeah. don't want to drag it home to your family or your friends and you yeah. just want to have someone out of your circle that kind of has these conversations all the time, then, yeah, let's talk about it because too many years have gone by, haven't I, Haven't they, with people well, not knowing how to. 30 years ago, um, we used to, you know, used to say harden up and, you know, you wouldn't wouldn't dare go in and say you had a problem with what you saw at work. Otherwise, um, they'd say maybe this job's not for you. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that struck me, you know, just a few years ago when I started podcasting and I had a real interest in first responders and the work that you guys do and for my own experience in the boxing ring and with trauma and with those two worlds colliding for me late in life and and going, oh, hang on, there's a reason the boxing ring felt comfortable to me and that's not normal. No. I wonder if this metaphoric boxing ring that is the careers of first responders, I wonder if there's a similar thing going on. Um, so I was really interested in that. Yeah. Yeah. And I one of the things I would think of was the idea that you are trained to take all of your human traits and almost dehumanize for, dehumanize them, um, cut off from the emotion, suppress you. Like suppression is kind of a, a it's necessary in your job, but yep. I don't think there's any idea of how to actually then manage that well. Well, everyone says they suppress their emotions in this job, but what does that mean? It just means denying them, I suppose. You know. Yeah. Um, you can suppress the emotion as much as you want, but eventually you're going to have to deal with it. And I think it's the dealing with later and later in life and, or later in the career that, that is the bit that bites you. So eventually I think there's some time where you've got to address all that emotion that you've been suppressing for years. Yeah. Well, what um, what interested you? Where'd you start? What'd you, what got you into the job? And I sort of fell into it. You know, I saw the exciting commercials on TV back in the mid-'80s that, 
show things like helicopters and police dogs and stuff like that. And I thought, you know, that'd be great. That'd be great for me because I was, you know, I didn't, I wasn't going to be a, I wasn't going to go to university and I certainly um, wasn't keen on any trades and um, my dad was in uniform for years. So I thought, well, that might be the job for me. And so I was 18, I was 18 when I applied and 18 and a half when I got into the academy um, in Victoria and had my 19th birthday in the academy. And um, <clears throat> you know, finished the training, ended up going to a police station out in the western suburbs as a no young 19-year-old kid with pea plates on my car. And I drove my car into the police station, parked out the back with the nice big pea plates on and drove the police car around. I don't know if this is a sign of me getting old, Cam, but now when I think when I think about 18, 19-year-olds walking into a job like that, I'm like, but they're just babies. Yeah, I had no <laughs> idea what I was doing. Absolutely no idea. I was lucky that I worked with a bunch of um, coppers that, um, you know, they had pretty extensive careers. You know, my sergeants were all crime squad people, ex-homicide or armed robbery squad, and wow. the senior connies I worked with were all, you know, 10, 15 year in the job. So I had had a lot of experience around me. If it wasn't for that, I've got no idea how would have got through it, I think. Yeah. Did you feel yourself, did you almost feel like you just immediately had an armour on? You walk in and you oh, have yes, an armour on? Away. I mean, there's there's something about putting on that police uniform and, and then jumping in a police car with a police sign on the side and your senior constable partner beside you that's quite experienced. And I thought I was in this, you know, going to work was a different world for me. I was still living at home with mum and dad. Yeah, wow. And I used to find it really weird that I'd get called a domestic to support it, you know, to sort of sort out a domestic argument between two married people who've got kids my age. Um, you know, talk about a fish out of water and I sort of sort of imposter syndrome back then. How dare me at 19 year old tell these adults how to handle their relationship when I'm still living at home with my mum. Oh, when you reflect back on that now, do you what do you reckon it changed in you as a person, or what do you reckon it made you skip skim over or or create in your own kind of psyche or world? Well, I don't think it changed me at all. I think it molded me because I mean, really, an eighteen year old boy. Um, I you know sometimes I still think that I haven't grown up yet. Um, <laughs> and you know, yeah, boys at eighteen year old they get, they get no idea what what they want to do. Um, half of them are sent off to university thinking they're going to study something and become whatever. And um, I don't think you make up your mind until you're in the late 20s, early 30s to what your career is going to be. I'm so 40. For me, I, I just turned 40 and I'm still figuring it out. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's, it's ridiculous that we try and make these decisions so early. Yeah. So for me at 18 year old, I hadn't really, I suppose, developed it as an adult. Um, and that, I suppose, that that police work did that for me. Yeah. But I don't think it changed me. I think it, it was how I, uh, it was how I developed. Yeah. What area of policing did you get into? Um, well, first first eight years was general duties. Um, so you know, typical response to anything first, you know, first responder, I suppose. Um, yeah. And I spent some time at Avondale Heights Police Station, which was in the western suburbs of Melbourne. But it was sort of it's a real weird place, Avondale Heights, because um, there was one way in and one way out. Um, it was surrounded by two major creek lines. And it was, you know, to the north was Broadmeadows, which was quite busy. And then St Albans was to the west and then Sunshine was to the south. And these were really busy stations. But, you know, the, the, the main... I suppose suburbs surrounding Avondale Heights was reasonably quiet. Um, back then, a lot of home burglaries back then, you know, people were busting into houses, taking TVs and video recorders and, you know, cameras and cash. Mm. Um, drugs wasn't a huge problem, although marijuana was probably the biggest drug of choice back then because it was easy to grow and easy to get hold of. Yeah. Um, we had some major highways, they call the highway and the Tullamore Freeway, so fatal accidents um, we used to get into a lot. So I spent about four years, I think, there before I transferred over to, over the creek to St Albans, yep. which was a totally different station. That was um, a lot of domestics, 
um, a lot of violence amongst kids. Um, domestic disputes was probably the main job we had back then over in St Albans. Um, it was just a melting pot of cultures. Yeah. Um, so it wouldn't be a surprise to say that you you know you spent most of your shift going to two or three domestics in the night. So that was a bit of an eye opener coming from Avondale Heights to St Albans. Yeah, I um, remember recent talking to a, a recent one of our guests, and I was quite curious, I guess, around and it's kind of what you're describing here is that idea of the difference between suburbs like the culture of our suburbs you just you know you go a little you know 20 30 minutes down the road and so you police in one area and there's this echo chamber of this is the world and yeah. then you transfer and you've got different problems different people different cultures different language different and you've got to relearn and go hang on everything I knew is a little bit different now yeah yeah that That's- was the difference between those two suburbs and you could probably throw a rock across the creek <sighs> from Avondale Heights to St Albans of the area and um but it took you 15, 20 minutes to drive there. Fascinating. Yep. Very yeah. close and totally different. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, there was a lot of European immigrants went to St Albans, you know, Croatian, um, Serbs, um, Yugoslav, yeah. uh, Maltese, whereas Avondale Heights was a bit more... Um, I suppose English, the Greeks and Italians, you know, that 1940s yes. influx of, um, you know, um, people after World War Two. So there was a lot older. So that's why the domestics weren't there. Yeah, right. You walk into St Albans and, you know, you've got the kids fighting these, fighting each other because of their grandparents, where they came from, um, you know, the different cultures treat their family members a bit differently and um, that generates the domestics and you've got alcohol generates domestics. Yeah. Um, it was just, it was a wild west, I think. Um, the funny thing was years yeah. after I left, the police station closed down. They built it at um, Keeler Downs, I think it was. Yeah. A funeral, a funeral home moved into the police building. So that pretty much sums up <laughs> what, it was, what it was like, you know. Closed <laughs> down the police station, the funeral home moved <laughs> Wow. Um, when I first moved to Melbourne, I'm from Tassie, and when I first moved to Melbourne, um, I lived in Nidri, Kill or East, all that kind of area, and and I f- thought for those years that that was Melbourne. And uh, for me, for myself, I, I, I don't think if I hadn't have spanned out and found Port Melbourne and St Kilda and where I live now, Elwood, and this side of the, the city, I think I would have ended up back in Tassie. Because I just never felt quite, I didn't, I never really felt safe and at ease there and I never felt like I fit. And I loved some of those suburbs. I lived in Ascot Vale for a while and I loved Mooney Ponds and Ascot Vale and the houses and the, yep. and there were some, you know, some lovely people there. But, yeah, there was, and it's just like that that change in culture you find from suburb to suburb and then you get some, you know, and it's interesting because, I felt safer in St Kilda and obviously there's still, you walk down the street in St Kilda and there's as much confronting things, but there was just some, there, for me there was a real difference oh, in yeah, yeah. how that felt. Coming from Tasmania and going to Nidri and East Keeler would have been a real over. <laughs> yeah. Did it have the quarry? Was the quarry still there when you moved into Keeler and Nidri? Uh, I don't know. Well, years ago, well, there's this, Really nice suburb. Um, it's built on an old quarry, so they filled most of the quarry in. They carved the side of the cliff area out, and there's a nice road that cuts in. Beautiful properties. Um, right. The old quarry is now a lake. It's got a cafe next to it. It's just beautiful. Yeah. Whereas when I was at Avondale Heights in the mid '80s, which covered that area, um, we used to recover burnout hulks of cars, and oh. um, you know the. Cooks used to steal the car and drive them off the top of the cliff into the quarry. Oh, far um, out! And now it's just this high class suburb. <laughs> it's we used to. I worked in hospitality, and I remember a time we'd finish and we'd close up, and the regulars would be there. And well, I remember a time like it was quite frightening when I think back. But I remember a time where 
the bakery open. We're outside drinking to all hours of the night, whatever, you know, as hospitality staff do. And somebody came down from the bakery that obviously opens early and they said, just you guys, there's someone up the road in that little kind of crevice there. I just want to let you guys know they've been standing there watching you for an hour. And there were so many weird little untoward, you know, there were a lot of suspect people that were in inverted commas regulars to the the cafe, the restaurant, and, yeah, I, I wouldn't like to remain in that world. <laughs> Welcome to Melbourne. Yeah, yeah, I was like, I might get back to Tassie. It's a bad place. I mean, every, every place has this sort of stuff, but, yeah. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people are sheltered from it, thank God. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, what? tell me more. Tell me more about... Well, like, was it you spent eight years in the general policing, and then what? And then did you get into another area? Yep. Then I transferred yep. to uh, the police air wing, which runs the helicopters around Melbourne. Oh. Um, that was in 1992. And I stayed there for 13 years, I think, all up. Um, I was an air observer, which uh, is the copper that, sit, that sits next to the pilot and um, makes all the operational decisions for the helicopter. Reads the maps as uh, on the radio. Um, yep. like I said makes the decisions, does all the winch operating, um, and that was the two, three roles we used to do. Mainly police work, just supporting the police out in the street, um, whether it be chasing cars or crooks or um, robberies or um, you know missing people. Yeah, we did air ambulance work as well. We would team up with a paramedic and go out the fatal accidents, pick people up. Mm. You know, major industrial actions, fires, um, any sort of incident that required getting a patient to hospital um, as quick as possible, whereas they yeah. might not necessarily survive the road trip. And we also did search and rescue, so um, anything, anything up the hills or the highlands, or anyone missing in the bush, um, boats missing at sea, people injured at sea. Yeah, we do that as well. So that was about 13 years total I did um, at the Air Wing. Yeah, right. When did you start to feel or sense or think about you, the effect of the job on, on yourself? Look, it wasn't till about 10 years after I left Victoria Police. After I left the Thick Pole or the Air Wing, I, I re- resigned from there in 2005 and I went on to the federal police, so I did 15 years there. Um, it was probably about 10 years after I left Vic Pole that I realised there was something going on, but nothing ever clicked to think that it was PTSD. I mean, I never really heard much about it back then. Mm. But in hindsight, when you look at the symptoms of PTSD, I probably had them back in the mid, mid to early 90s, mm. some of the symptoms. Um, but until you're told what the symptoms are and what it is, you probably just dismiss them as part of being part of work. I mean, insomnia is one of the symptoms of PTSD. But I mean, mm. you tell me a shift worker that doesn't. I was going to say, is shift work. This is the most frustrating, from the outside looking in, the most frustrating part for me is going with just the psychological and emotional demands that are placed on your, th- this line of work. And then on top of that, Let's just mess with the number one thing with the stresses out of human being, sleep. Yeah, yeah, sleep. Yeah, totally totally stuff up the rhythm of sleep and daylight to the point where you don't, you can't really tell the difference. No. Um, It's not good for you. No. Um, But for years I dismissed it as being part of shift work. And, yes, you know, part of shift work is hard to get used to. And it's hard to get used to that new rhythm for sleep. Yeah. Um, but even when I went to the federal police and the shift work basically stopped, I was still having trouble sleeping. Yeah, it, it, there really needs to be, however they do it, there's some better sleep science and protocols around managing because I feel like I could be wrong. I'm not a police officer or a first responder of any sort, but I imagine that it's just here are your work hours, turn up, and once you leave, do what you like, yeah. and then you're out there managing your own sleep and your own. The thing about stress is I don't know <laughs> I'm stressed until I start to come out of the stress 
And I go, oh, I think I've been really stressed because you go into this protective coping mechanism, this protective state of like go, go, go or stay distracted and then you pause and go, oh, I'm quite exhausted. Oh, I'm very stressed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Who would have thought? I mean, you talk about sleep and sleep hygiene. I never, I never even knew anything about the sleep cycle and sleep hygiene until I got diagnosed with PTSD and went to a course. Wow. And I thought, wow. why didn't I know this? 30 years ago. Yeah. I could have saved myself a lot of trouble just by knowing how your sleep routine works and and how to manage it. Yeah. Tell me about to manage it. Yeah. Tell me about that first, like where'd the seed of thought come from and what was what action did you take and how did all it all kind of unfold? For the PTSD? Yeah. Um Look, I'd, I'd always kept in contact with a police psychologist who was a friend of mine, um, and he was one of these guys that, um, you know, he, he doesn't he doesn't hide behind words. He doesn't mince his words. If he thinks there's a there's a problem, he just comes out and says it. And I remember meeting him for coffee at a cafe um, on a Monday. I hadn't seen him in a long time, and he said he wanted to catch up with me, sat down at the cafe and he said, how are you going? And we talked about sleep and things like that and um, how life was going. And he he said to me, I need, I need, want you to go and see your doctor and tell your doctor exactly what you told me. And I sort of, I still didn't click. I still didn't click. So obviously he saw something in, in what I was saying that needs to be addressed. And it was only five days later they had a massive breakdown and ended up going to see the doctor anyway. Wow. So he preempted it. And up until then, um, you know, of course I heard about PTSD and I thought to myself at one stage, and I said to one of my work colleagues, you know, if anyone's got it, I'll probably have it. Um, and that was a month before the breakdown. So subconsciously, obviously, I knew what was going on. Um, But consciously, I didn't really want to address it. Um, Yeah. You know, I said to my mate, the psychologist, that I'll make the appointment, but I never did. Um, And then (laughs) I think it was on the Friday, this massive meltdown where I had no choice but to either go see a doctor or get locked up in the nut house. Mm. It got that close. And what did that, how did that play out? What what was that? What was that, if you want to share Um, it? Feel free at any point to tell me to get stuffed. I ask a lot of questions. <laughs> it's all in the book anyway, so it's all out there. People have read about it. But I was on the train. I had a busy day at work, actually, um, and I knocked off a little bit early and I met up with a couple of guys to have a couple of beers after work, which I didn't do all the time, um, maybe once a month. Yep. And um, I remember my wife saying, you got to get home because you've got to catch the kids' basketball team, and I tried to get her to do it while I stayed and drink. But that didn't work. So I jumped <laughs> on the train and um, I was on the way home listening to music and then all of a sudden I sort of had a micro sleep. And when I come to, I didn't know where I was, had no idea. Uh, I knew I was on a train but had no idea which part of the track. And I had on a number of occasions fallen asleep on a train and woke up in a different station before, so I thought I'd done that before. Um. And then I started shaking. Um, my heart rate was through the roof. And oh. I remember thinking, you know, the feeling in your gut when there's total despair. Imagine if you got told that your life's about to end in 10 minutes. You'd feel this absolute dump and you'd feel, ugh, that's how I felt. Like yeah, wow. Didn't I call it. Um, and then the tears. I started bawling my eyes out and I couldn't breathe. Had no idea what was going on. Then, just as quick as that came, it went, and I was quite conscious of where I was and thought, "There's a puddle of tears at my feet," and I was trying to cover them up with my feet and trying to rub it in with the shoes and looking to see if everyone's watching me, thinking, "Who's <laughs> the guy in the suit and tie, tie um, have an absolute meltdown?" And then it came back again and again, and eventually I got myself off the train. And my wife and kids were picking me up. And usually my kids are quite excited to see Dad come down the ramp at the train station. But mm-hmm. 
they took one look at me because I was absolutely mess. Um, and they weren't excited at all. They went back in the car and sat there and didn't say anything. And I got to the car and the wife said, get in. I didn't even know how to open the door. Um, so after that, sort of, she rushed me home. And I was sort of lucky she had coffee that day with a psych nurse that was a friend of hers. And I'd never met this lady. And so she called the psych nurse. So the first time I meet my wife's friends, I'm sitting on the end of the bed. Oh, oh. She's pouring down my face. I can't breathe. I'm bloody hyperventilating. Um, I could feel my heart rate, you know, pulsing through my, my arteries. Oh, it's just, it's just oh. ridiculously sad. And, um, and I imagine you had really no concept of, I don't know what this feeling is. I don't know why I feel it. Or did no, you? Absolutely did... no idea. And I yeah. remember saying to my wife, I can't do it anymore. And she says, What do you mean you can't do what? So I got no idea. I just can't do whatever it is. <laughs> I can't do it anymore. And I've heard that a lot. A few people say that. I think um, there's a couple of people I know with PTSD that have gone that far and had that breakdown that say the same thing. They just can't do it anymore. Yeah. And I, and I, I tend to think it's that all that motion that you've been suppressing for the last 30 years has come back at one day and said, knocked on the door and said, I'm here now, you've got to deal with me. Yes. And that's yeah. what I reckon it is. Um, because it is quite overly emotional. Yes. I, I Years ago, and not to not at all to the degree that you've just described, but I recall, you know, when, when my own trauma was coming up into my awareness when the stuff I'd suppressed and I would go for, for walks or to the gym and kind of when my heart rate rose or I'd, you know, I'd get that tipping point, have a breakdown, be crying. But I, in the moment I would think to myself, if someone come up and said, I'll fix whatever is upsetting you, I, I couldn't give them an answer to what like I, I didn't yeah. know, just like you described, I didn't know what do I, I don't know what I need to fix to stop crying. You know, there's a problem. You need to stop it, but you got no idea what it is. Yeah. Yeah, and I imagine for yourself, like with the, the those visceral, physical reactions, and almost that lack of lack of cognition would have been terrifying. Yeah. And you know, I mean, I remember my wife gets on the phone to different psychologists and police psychiatrists and stuff, and and they said, "Look, you need to call a cat team." Now, I was around when cat teams first started. I don't know what they're like, but um, now, but you know. Coppers used to call the cat team because there was a, a a person with mental health issues that they couldn't handle. What's a cat team? What's cat team? Crisis assessment team, I think it stands right. for. So it's usually a psych nurse, um, a doctor, and someone else that come and help in situations of mental health. Where <laughs> so, the, so the police would call them if you had someone that was suicidal or or really needed to go to see to, to a psych hospital. So no. I certainly didn't want those people turning up because the only time I'd ever met them, they were taking away people in padded and putting them in padded cells. Yeah. And for me, the only thing that settled me down is this um, psych nurse friend of my wife said, well, if we can't calm you down, you've got to go into hospital. And it got to the point where eventually I got so exhausted that I don't think my body could do anything apart from sleep, and that's what it was. So about three or four hours later, this constantly recurring tears and, and um, heart rate and everything, my body was just exhausted and I just slept. Probably the best sleep I've had in years. Yeah. Um, so the next day I went and saw the doctor, which is what I was supposed to have done <laughs> last Monday, and she took one look at me and said, I know exactly what's wrong, sit down, well, let's fix it. That's the last I ever worked. Wow. Mm. That was about eight years ago. And what did that, I guess, God, so many questions. Like what did that period of time look and feel like? Did How long did it take before you felt like you were regaining a bit of bloody clarity and control and a sense of self again? Yeah, I remember going to see my first psychologist and um, she was great. She got me back on my feet. But the first thing she said to me is, um, so what do you think is going to happen in the next few months? I said, well, I had to get back to work in six months. And she goes, all right, let's aim for that. 
that never happened. <laughs> um, and some of the stuff she come up with, just it, you know, it was mainly to get you out, breathing fresh air, and get you out of that little cocoon. Because I, I would have been stuck in my bedroom if I didn't go out to see her, and she had me doing all sorts of things like going to the museum and, you know, um, looking at an art show and stuff mm. like that, just to get me out and about. Because suddenly, I felt more comfortable in the bedroom and and to be around people. Probably for the next six months was absolutely scary. Um, I think the first time I saw the doctor the next day, I remember walking into a cafe, which I'd been to a hundred times before, just had a coffee with my wife. And just the noise inside that cafe, which wasn't that busy, was enough to set me off. So I'm sitting in the cafe and there's these tears rolling down the front of my shirt because of the noise and I had to get out because that noise was like, like someone drilling into my skull. It was just absolutely over the top. Yeah. Just from the normal noise of a cafe and people chatting. What was your interpretation of being told you have PTSD? Did it feel like a label? Did it feel like something you can resolve? Did it feel heavy? Like, Oh, look, I had no doubt. There was no doubt in my mind that I was going to get over it and I was going to go back to work. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's what, that's what you do when you're sick. You go see a doctor, you get fixed, and you go back to work. Yeah. But... Of course, that never happened, and um, and then you realise. I think it took about another two years of treatment till you realise why you don't go back to work. It's because, yeah, you know, a whole bunch of things, but you know, the symptoms just prevent you from doing it. Um, yeah. You know, you, you don't you don't get cured of PTSD and get over the symptoms. What you do is you 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 learn how to navigate the symptoms and live with them and change your life so that they don't affect you as much. Yeah. But it doesn't take much. Walking into a police station would be enough for most of that to come to back, I'd say. Yeah. Um, and for years, even now, if I, if I had to go to a police station, I'd probably rather sit out the front of the car and get them to come and see me. I think yeah. that's how bad it is. Um, if you were to rate that, say, you before the police, as a one, and then at the depth of that diagnosis is your ten. How far back along the scale do you think you you generally tend to sit now? Six. Six. A manageable six. Yeah. Yeah. But um, yeah, and I think, and that's only through education. I think half the trick to surviving and 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 getting on with life is knowing as much as you can about PTSD. Yeah. Like I talked about the the sleep cycle, and you know, that's part of it. Um, yeah, anger. Look, we're an angry bunch. Um, we have extremely short fuses. Yeah. Um, and we can go to zero to absolutely. I can't even describe the anger within a split second, over yeah. the top. Yeah. And next to no reason. We don't like noise. We don't like um, social engagement. Um, we don't like a whole bunch of things. We're like grumpy, grumpy <laughs> old people, I think, before our time. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, nowadays it's um, if we ever go to a function, I need an exit strategy. So, you know, we might take two cars and I might leave a little bit early. Yeah. That sort of thing. Um, you know, depending on how many people are there, there's too many people won't go at all. Um I've got to watch the noise. I like quiet places. I like to sit in the dark corner of a cafe, not right near the front door and stuff like that. So you've got to manage this stuff. And that's I think that's what the getting over PTSD or living it's all about is is knowing as much as possible and then navigating your way around it and changing your lifestyle to to avoid the the symptoms. Yeah. Has a has any aspect of it brought Positivity, like, is there a part oh, well, of it where you go, "Hey, here's a bit of a silver lining"? Well, the same psych that said I need you to go see a doctor, and his name's Joe anyway, so I've mentioned Joe. It's about him, and he'll know what I'm talking about. Um, he called me about three days. He heard that I had 
that meltdown. He called me about three days later. Um, he was a Victoria police psych and I was in the AFP, so he couldn't actually help me. He wasn't within his role to help me, so we had to call the AFP's um, psychology unit. So he just checked on me three days later and he rang and said, Cameron, it might be the best, worst thing that ever happened to you. And I it, I think I'm half smart, but I couldn't work out what the hell he was talking about. It. But he said, you look, you, you'll work it out later. And there is, there is a silver lining. I mean, you, I think you become a bit more um, conscious of the people around you, like your family. Yep. Um, your, your lifestyle changes for the better. It's no longer about work. Yeah. You know, coppers and first responders, it's 100% about work. Work is them, and without it, they don't exist. Mm. Now it's um, work is nothing. Um, my family's everything, and without them, I don't exist. Yeah. Um, the other thing is, I got to write a book, which I never thought I'd do in a million years. That's pretty ace. Um, and that was brought around by PTSD because if it wasn't for PTSD, I wouldn't have even certainly would have had the stories to write a book, but I wouldn't have been able to do it the yeah. way I did it. How cathartic was that process? Very, and that's the way. That's why it started. Um, I'd, I'd had a lot of memories. So I never I never suffered from flashbacks. A lot of people think that you need flashbacks to have PTSD, but you don't. Um, mine was a rumination. It was going over jobs over and over and over again. And once they got stuck in my head, I couldn't get rid of them. Yeah. And that would keep me awake at night. So I wouldn't have flashbacks or be back there in the moment. I never had a problem with that. I had a problem with just constantly thinking about them 24 hours a day. Mm. So, unfortunately, they were a bit muddled up, so I decided to write them down and try and piece them together and work out which job was which, what what part of it I was thinking about. You know, it might be just um, thinking about a certain portion of a job, so I write it down. I end up having all these notes everywhere, and I showed it to a friend, and she said, who was a writer, and she said, you probably should sit down and write this out and see if you could piece it together in, in stories, and I did with her help. Her name's Vicky, actually. Thanks, Vicky. <laughs> yep. Thanks, Vicky. Vicky Petrita, she's got a book out too. Um, so I did, and then um, that's it. It seemed to be this really cathartic process about dealing with the emotion of it and also enabling me to not just focus on the bad part of the job, to realise there's a whole different story that leads up to the job or after it. Yeah. Um, and with PTSD, we seem to focus on the bad bits. So writing about the whole story was good because it made me realise that there was actually some good stuff we did. Yeah. And I said at the end of the book, the shame is not that I had PTSD. It's The shame is that it took PTSD to make me realise all the good stuff that I did during the career that I'd actually forgot about. Yeah, wow. Um. It really pushes self-care to the forefront, you know, and th- and that in itself is a positive. There's a lot of people that don't actually get the awareness and, and put themselves, and I just think the intention of that psychologically, the intention of just looking after yourself mm. is really important. And I think, you know, you've got family, you've got kids, and kids model behaviour. Oh, they do. So to see you now living your life where you're at the forefront of I need to look after me, that is, <laughs> I mean, I think that is so valuable. Yeah, um, the looking after me, but it's the recovery from PTSD is got a bit of a selfish one because it's about you. Um, yeah. We tend to forget about our families during it and we've got to sort of pinch ourselves and make us wake up and realise that the family's there and they you know, and your wife and kids, like my kids take a, took a fair battering of the angry dad, which is unfair to them, and so is my wife. So you constantly feel like you need to apologise to them all the time because you've got no patience, you've got no motivation, you don't enjoy anything, you're, yeah. you're angry all the time. So, you know, they've put up with that for probably most of their lives. So 
it's a good thing that I'm probably not working. I can pick them up from school and have a chat to them and, you know, take them to the shops because they want to cook or help me out as much as I can, whereas if I was still working, I wouldn't be here. Yeah. And I'd be off at work. Yeah. So there's there's another part of it, that silver lining, the light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. There were there when you you know, in the writing of the book and the the memories and the jobs and the things, were there what stood out to you was as were there some of the main things? Were there incidences or was it just the general accumulation of continually living this life and being in these high stress environments? I think it was an accumulation and it just got to the point. I think for me it was accumulation over about 10 years and then it got to the point where the downhill run started, you know, it it reached its level. And I I noticed, you know, there's a few jobs that come up in helicopters that I thought, yeah, that's, that's it, I don't want to do that again. It might be time to move on. I lost my love of flying and I didn't want to get in a helicopter anymore, which sounds a bit strange to some people, saying, why wouldn't you want to go get in a helicopter at work and fly around the city of Melbourne? But it got to the point where that was not enjoyable anymore and that was that should have been a sign that I missed. Mm. Um, and then I moved to the feds and every, all that sort of stuff got behind, put behind me. But the downhill run had already started, I think, from that, from that 2005 moment where I lost my interest in flying. So I lost my interest in work. I lost my interest in everything. So that mm. was the peak of it. And then it was just a downhill run from there to the point where um, my brain and body had said enough's enough and I had that breakdown on the train. Yeah. It took about 10 years. I, I tip you've had some pretty good conversations with your wife since. What Did you get a sense of what her, you know, long-term experience and perception of, you know, did she, she have a sense of what, so it was accumulating within you, or well, no, because I would, I'd never showed it really. Um, yeah, right. You know, uh, you know, I left my. I had a, a friend and psychologist one day that said, you know, you know, need to have a bucket at the door where you leave your work at the door because you don't want to bring it into the house. And I, I'm not sure that's a good thing, but that's yeah. what I did. I, I would leave it at the door. You know, dismiss it. Um, you know, we tend to think that we can't talk to our wives about work because we don't want to affect them, whereas I think that's a lot of crap, actually. I think we need to talk to them. Maybe if I talked a bit more about what was going on and the feelings and the shit jobs and actually sat on the couch and um, responded to them like a, a normal person with sadness and grief and all those sort of emotions, maybe I wouldn't be where I am now because we tend yeah. to not deny that. We tend to... So we we can't be sad because we're coppers or first responders and we've got to be out of front of the next day. So we can't be upset by the body or we can't be upset by that person's death, whereas we probably should be because the normal reaction to someone's death or a gruesome, horrible thing is sadness or grief. Yeah. Um, you know, it might be anger, it might be guilt. We we deny all those emotions. Well, even you think about, like, I talk a lot about recently about the idea of loneliness in human connection that is just getting more and more diminished in the way that we are connected, you know, socially these days. And just like think about the level of connection between you and your family and your loved ones when you're in inverted commas leaving your bucket at the door. Like how can you develop a close intimate relationship with your family that you live with every single day of your life when you're leaving 80% of your experiences every day yeah. out the front door, on the doorstep, no, waiting for you to... It doesn't happen. No. It doesn't happen. I mean, I'm sure the first time that uh, even my... I remember my father read the book and he came and apologised to me. I had no... He said, oh, sorry, I had no idea because I wouldn't even talk to my dad about it. Yeah. My was in uniform for most of his life. So my wife, I'm sure the first time she actually wow about the nitty-gritty and the details of what I did for a job for 30 years was until she read the book. So there's this hidden part of me that's been around for years, like eight, nine hours a day. Yeah. On Friday I was doing this stuff that no one else knew about, except for the people I did it with. And they just happened to be the ones that we talked about. You know, when we got together, 
all the observers, all the coppers, when we got together and have drinks, we talked about all the stuff we did during the day and all yeah. the horrible shit. Yeah. So we'd go home and you'd say, what, your wife would say, how was your day? You'd say, yeah, I was all right. <sighs> that's it. So I don't see that's how that's supposed to help a relationship. And certainly, no. I don't think it certainly doesn't help your mental health to hide that stuff. And we know for a fact that if you share it with your partner or your friend or whatever, you're not going to damage them. Yeah. You can't you can't catch PTSD from someone else. And yeah. you can't get PTSD for someone else's trauma. The trauma has to happen to you. We've got all these people getting on the I saw someone um get on Twitter one day and someone was bad mouthing and they said they had PTSD from someone bad mouthing on Twitter. I cracked the shits and said, well, you can't get it from that. You know, the trauma the trauma is is about life threatening trauma and you either have to witness it or or what happened to you. Um Yeah. I mean there's there's the idea around vicarious trauma, but I mean you, you really need to be immersing quite vividly into a lot of situations yeah. for that to have an impact. Yeah. Um, wow. So if you go home and tell your wife or your family, your husband or partner and parents what you did during the day, it's not gonna it's not gonna harm them. It's gotta do it's gotta do you in the relationship and especially you some good. Because maybe that's the way we should have been processing it rather than just um, suppressing it. And look, these sorts of conversations open. I mean, I've I've said the same thing. People have often said to me, I'm I'm five, nearly six hundred episodes into this, into my show roll with the punches. I also run the code nine conversations. So I'm having these conversations and we talk about really confronting stuff and, and I feel deeply in the conversations, but nothing hangs over my head. And people have often said, I'll oh, make sure, make sure you're okay. And I'm like, I, f- I, it's therapeutic. It's therapeutic for me because we're having an open, honest conversation. We're sharing stuff. It's been extremely positive. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, you're at the point now that if it does affect you, you know what to do. You, you go and see someone and you have a chat about it, and you, you know, you know what to do. But yeah, just for years I was saying, oh, you know, I can't, you know, that body doesn't bother me now, or I can't let it bother me because I've got to go to work the next day and how can I do the job again? Yeah. But, you know, getting upset about it, which is the way you probably should, or being sad about it, having a cry on the couch about it that night wouldn't have stopped me going to work the next day anyway. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it upset me and that's okay because that's completely normal and I can still do my job, but in the middle of that, sure, I should be upset. Yeah, we tend to not want to do that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, years ago it was you didn't want to, you certainly didn't want to show it because um, you can imagine back in the early 90s flying around in an air ambulance and you said to your boss that you had trouble with the ambulance jobs, you probably would find yourself off the ambulance and working in it on a desk for a while. Yeah. Um, but now climate's changed and workplaces have changed, whereas you're allowed to actually say that and no one's going to, well, no one should ground you for it. Um, yeah. They should help you out. Yeah. So if you were to have your time again from the beginning, knowing what you know now, what would your non-negotiables be? To <clears throat> that's, that's a really difficult question because I've always said that if I had my time again, I wouldn't change a thing. I love that, by the way. I, I, I couldn't because I'm at a better place now. But, you know, if you had asked me that a couple of days after the breakdown, I probably would have said I'll do everything totally different. But now yeah. I wouldn't change a thing because now I realise all the good stuff we did yes. um, and the fun I had and I'm in this spot now because of the way everything happened. So I, I would not change a thing. And I said to someone not long ago that, like we 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 tend to forget about, and I've told you this before, the good the good deeds, the people that that's life has changed because of your interaction. Yeah. And there's way more of those people out there that have had a better life because your interaction than what. There are traumatic experiences, but we tend to we tend to think, oh, yeah, I forgot about most of those. Yeah. And if that if PTSD is the price that. I and my friends and acquaintances have to pay in order to do that job and do that well, then then so be it, I think. Um, so I wear PTSD now as a, 
as the cost of doing good. But I'm at a place now where I'm happy yeah. with paying the cost. Yeah, I really, really, really love that. It's a really powerful answer. It's Yeah, so I think most people say, oh, what would you want to go through that? But thing, I think things are much better now than what they were before. Yeah, we live in a world where we want we want the good without ever suffering and it. At the end of the day, it's the suffering that either highlights the good or brings the good and when there's no suffering, the good just becomes the baseline and we're never satisfied with the baseline. Look, no, baseline, never. like we are extremely privileged living where we live. Yep. We're first world people. Yep. We sit there and we still and we go, oh, yeah. And we're disappointed <laughs> when we only get 3G on our phone. Yes. Yes. So the tough, there's always shiny sides to this, the tough stuff and it doesn't make it any better to go through but helps us appreciate things. Friends I've got that have PTSD have all said the same thing, that they, you know, if they had their time again, they'd do exactly the same. Mm. I find I that, that that is quite common amongst those that have gotten through the hard times and gotten to the end of it where they can, you know, live a normal life and and socialise and they've got the family relationships good and, yeah. um, you know, the symptoms are under control and they've changed everything. And like like, like um, mate Joe said, you know, there is might be the best, worst thing that ever happened to you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Where can where can people get their hands on your book and do you have any socials here that, that people can follow yes, or yes, connect? you find me on Instagram if you put in 10 feet tall and not quite bulletproof. I think you'll find some of my posts. Um, yeah, you can buy it on Amazon. I think it's probably the easiest way. I don't think you'll see it at shops anymore. It sort of hit the the um, stands during the height of COVID where everything closed down. Oh, yeah, right. So, yeah, not a really good time to release a book. <laughs> when no one can enter a bookshop. And no one can enter a bookshop, yeah. That's pretty much, I think, the month after it got released or published, it was when everything closed down. Oh, but that's John right. Cam. <laughs> Terrible timing. Timing's everything. Everyone, go out and grab a copy of that. Yeah, please do. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your story and thank you right. for the work that you that you did in your entire career. Thank you. Everyone, thanks for tuning in and we'll see you guys next time. <laughs>